0: everyone, welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert and I am your host today. Just a couple of announcements before we get started. Last year we did a free pressure training event and had over 300 people enroll. This year we're doing another free training event. This one is temperature. Now, just like last year, if you complete this successfully you will receive a temperature badge credential through our program. This is something that anybody can join. However, you must join before the end of 2021. This will be going through the entire year and it will be done in conjunction with Calab Magazine. So there will be reading portions in Calab Magazine and video portions given through our school online. For more information, you can check out our website starting next week. We'll have another announcement on the next podcast, but next week we will be opening enrollment so that you can sign up for that free training event. And you can check that out on signcalibration.com. Also, this podcast is a sponsor. This podcast was brought to you in part by Calab Solutions, the creators of metrology.net. Do you want your software's uncertainties to match your accreditation uncertainties? If so, you should check out metrology.net. That's just one of the many ways that we are building better software. To find out more, visit us online at metrology.net. And in keeping with the theme of this year, our free training, of course, is temperature. To kick that off, our guest today is Thomas Harper. He's the founder of Harper Metrology and thomas has a long history in temperature measurements he started out his career while going through the university of utah for his bachelor's in chemical engineering he worked at heart scientific good old heart scientific for eight years and seven months after which he moved on to be the senior metrologist for flute calibration and ended up heading the laboratory in the uk And then moving on to the one in the netherlands being their metrology leader for temperature pressure and flow so he's coming on the podcast today to talk to us about all sorts of things temperature some questions that i have for the basic learners of temperature out there and then also to talk about his new project he he now opened up his own consulting business harper metrology and he's going to tell us a little bit more about that I'm very excited to have Thomas on the podcast today, and without further ado, let's get into the podcast with Thomas. Thank you for listening. So joining me today is Thomas Harper. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you.
1: Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's it's a pleasure to do this with you.
0: Now... Looking at your LinkedIn, I have a lot of things to talk to you about. Cause obviously first things first, your, your education being university of Utah, you know, we had Jeff Gust on previously and he mentioned how physics, his physics degree was really helpful in calibration. I'm sure chemical engineering is very helpful as well. Do you mind talking about some of the maybe positives to your background in, in calibration?
1: Well, one of the biggest things um, with with chemical engineering, um, anybody that's done a chemical engineering degree knows that uh, by the time you're done with that degree, you've got a really well-rounded science background, science and math. Um, Nice. At at the University of Utah, for example, when you by the time well, well, at least when I was taking my degree, making, uh, graduating. by the time you get done with the core courses for the chemical engineering program, you're one class away from a physics minor, one class away from a chemistry minor, and one class away from a math minor. Wow. So you've got your chemical engineering core, and then all the other, um, you know, you know, the hard sciences that you can think of, chemistry, physics, and then math on top of that, are, you know, it makes a huge, makes up a huge part of what you do in chemical engineering.
0: Sure. So. I know a lot of the engineers I work with, you know, that do process engineering for manufacturing whatever. Sometimes the there's a disconnect with calibration. It would seem like because you're you're actually talking about the, you know, in in the chemical engineering and and the other things that you touch that it seems like you're in that in-depth area of the measurements that it seems like it would be pretty helpful. Yeah, I think it
1: is. You know, everything that we did Um, In lab and when you're doing processes with chemical engineering, for example, if you're looking at, um, you know, one of the great things about the U when I was going there, I hope they still have it, but they were they had one of the very few operating distillation columns in the U.S. as far as university is concerned. Um, So so as a university, we were able to, university students, we were able to take that um, distillation column and run experiments and do things like that. It also when you're doing bio um, biotype um, measurements or experiments and those sorts of things, bioengineering. Mm-hmm. Um, temperature or all of those, all those variables are very important to know. And so you're doing those measurements. You want to make certain that your instrumentation, you know, with chemical chemical engineering, you're taking masses of what, what compounds you're putting into a system. Um, tracking the conservation of mass conservation of energy through a system and so all of those things are tools that you use with calibration because you have to know how to track those throughout a system it's not just get it going and let it go it's okay am I at the right temperature here how close am I um do, do all of my uh numbers make, a, make sense when, I'm getting, when I get done with the reactions, because it is all about reactions and what's going on with that with chemical engineering. And even though it's not a, in a chemistry lab where you've got small small case re, um, reactions, you're actually looking at very large process reactions, but they're still reactions and they're still um, have to be well controlled, well maintained.
0: Yeah. And I even notice you know in a lot of the manufacturing places that I go that have a chemical like a chemical lab or a chemistry lab or whatever you know things that we touch are like pH meters you know and and um diving into both the formulas but also temperature so i think that's a easy thing for a lot of us to grasp how they yeah. are very important together yeah so from 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 college did you go I noticed next was uh heart scientific on your, on your profile, yeah. which a lot of people have so much love for that company. You know uh, what was it like working there as your first stop?
1: Well, that's actually, that was my stop while I was, was in university. So I oh, started, okay. I, was, I was working with heart scientific. I started working with heart scientific in 1999 um, while it was still heart scientific. Um, so I got the, uh, great opportunity to work with some some of the innovators of their um, products, Mike Hurst for the temperature sources, Rick Walker on the um, readout devices, my mentor as far as temperature metrology, um, Thomas Wyant, um, you know, amazing people to work with. Uh, and it was, you know, nice, you know, we started out with a nice small field company. Um, uh, we were, it wasn't, um, you know, Mike Hurst was one of the originators of the company, um, and then, you know, through the years, you know, purchasing by other companies or things like that, so we were um, we were part of a larger corporation at that time when I started, but it was still very much a small company because we were left alone, um, so everything we did was based in American Fork, Utah. You know, it was all, you know, we had oversight financially from the holding company, but Sure. Really, other than that, it was all we were. Heart Scientific and everything we did was, you know, our company, and that's we put a lot of pride in that, um, which is one of the reasons why I believe it was two thousand one. Fluke ended up purchasing, purchasing Heart Scientific,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's how we. That's how Heart Scientific moved into Fluke. But you know, I still run into people. Um, it's been you know we're going twenty years on since the acquisition, and you know, they talk about temperature baths or things like that, especially in the States, it's, um, heart scientific, right? Even though a heart scientific hasn't existed as a company for a long time. And it's like, Oh, you know, heart scientific. Um, that's, that's a real tie back to that.
0: Yeah. Even, even, uh, because I obviously do school and training and everything, people talk about some of the old training that would take place there, and you know, guys that had gone to the location, so they even know the location. It's, it's just one of those that's kind of in the lexicon of of uh, old school metrology, I think.
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that. <laughs> are, are you are you from here in Utah? I yeah, I originally grew up um, in northern Utah. It's a small town that no one, unless you're from small town northern Utah, you would never know of it. Um Corinne, Utah. I don't even know that.
0: And I have yeah. family in like Tremonton and stuff.
1: Okay. Tremonton is 10 miles north of Corinne.
0: Gotcha. Okay.
1: Um Brigham is 10 miles east of Corinne so Corinne's out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. <laughs> I I well I I grew up yeah, I grew up um, about as close to uh back in the day Morton Thia as you could get. If you remember um i don't even know who they are now it was morton thickel they built the uh, booster rockets for the space shuttle
0: no i'm not sure
1: because it was atk propulsion and then it got bought by morsel grumman i think but or gotcha. it was, I, I i don't even know anymore who it is sure. but, but you know i we would have earth earthquake drills and on the days that they would test the booster rockets because they would actually start shaking the lights while I was in elementary school. <laughs>
0: wow. That's crazy. I didn't even know we had anything like that up in because I left here in ninety-nine for the military, but um, I didn't know we had anything like that up there. That's that's yeah. cool.
1: No, so nineteen, you know, all of the space shuttle stuff. So 86 was horrible for our economy up there.
0: Mm.
1: When the shuttle when Challenger exploded. Right. Yeah, that's too so, bad. But Yeah, no, that's, that's where we're at with all of the, uh, you know, that's where I grew up. So I'm originally from Utah, uh, worked with, you know, Heart Scientific, Fluke Corporation. About 10 years ago, they approached me um, to see, because we had, our Fluke has a lab, temperature lab in the UK. Um, They asked me whether or not I'd be willing to relocate and go help that lab out. And then promptly they said wait wait we found somebody uh don't worry about it and a few years after that they said you know that person we found it's not really working out do you think you'd be willing to go do it still <laughs> and so that started our adventure
0: and did you know did you know Dutch already
1: no I didn't know Dutch I lived in Germany for a couple of years so I knew okay. German but but that's actually almost makes it harder to learn Dutch because they've got a lot of words that look the same that have completely different meanings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it doesn't help at times.
0: Sure. So when you're when you're studying obviously, you know, chemical engineering you're not like hey, I'm going to be a metrologist one day. Well, at least I don't. I wouldn't think so. But when you um, become, you know, interested or focus somewhat in temperature, pressure and flow and things like that was did you just find yourself interested in temperature, or is that just happenstance of a career, and, and that's what people had you focus in, and you really took, you know, got into it? How did that that progression happen?
1: The progression happened um, quite honestly, like you said, by happenstance a bit, because I was trying to pay my way through college, and I started with Heart Scientific, and originally started um, at the time they were building an extension on their building. Um, so when I started, it was a smaller building, then they extended it out. And my first two weeks were cleaning up the construction site. Nice. <laughs> so uh, I progressed from there to where I um, went from doing that to pulling parts for the different um, devices that they built to actually building at least wow. sub-assemblies on the, the um, instruments or building the entire instruments up from boards and things like that. Um, to within about a year year and a half they had me in the calibration laboratory um, So I did a lot of different things to start with so it was a, it was a great opportunity to learn and to grow in a lot of different ways and then within about a year year and a half, you know I guess they saw some potential to do these do the calibration work with the detail and things like that and so I went into calibration and have been there. Uh, calibration and metrology ever since
0: yeah is, is it been mostly in those type of areas the pressure and flow and and temperature it's,
1: yeah it's been pretty much exclusively temperature pressure a little bit of flow um so that's uh really the the areas that i've worked in i i have done some other small electrical type or i've done some translations for different companies on trainings that they do for uh, pressure, um, mass, those sorts of things. So my um, my experience really focuses in on the temperature side of things. Sure, but but as you as you know, metrology um, principles translate to you know any for any um, any type of metrology. Right. Uh, those principles are sp- the principles of metrology work across all all um, subjects. So,
0: right. And temperature is one of those that is just so key in so many different areas. You know, especially manufacturing and stuff like that. Um, kind of sw- uh, changing focus just slightly. You know, if we if we look at uh, the training because you've done training of technicians and things like mm-hmm. that, and temperature and all that um this year we've also been focusing uh, temperatures of focus of this year but also risk what are some of the risks of getting temperature calibrations right what are some of those applications you've seen that can can kind of drive home to people how important temperature can be in cal
1: well um you know early on in my my um yeah, I'm trying to think here, and I've got Dutch running through my mind, so sorry about that. No, no Wait, worries. Early, early on in my career, um, we worked with, uh, I did some testing on a specific um, temperature cell or a temperature point for a company, uh, the the freezing point of benzoic acid. Oh. Um, and it turns out that freezes at 121 degrees um, Celsius, which is a uh, you know sterilization point. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very important point, Um, for example, in pharmaceuticals or uh, biomedical companies, those sorts of things, where they need to have their um, equipment um, clean. So, you know, if that temperature is a little bit too low, then their equipment's not getting clean. If you're working, for example, in that, you know, infections can pass along, you can have Um, you know, contaminated samples when you're trying to grow a new grow uh, culture to test a drug or things like that. So that's one thing where temperature comes into play. Another thing where temperature has um, really huge effects is what um, I was talking about before, distillation columns. Uh, You know, when you're looking at refining oil, or, you know, oil separates out at different temperatures. So you have, you know, you have within the... um, Within the column itself, there's different temperatures all the way around it. And so, you know, that's one of the spots where if you don't have the right temperature, you're not going to get the diesel out as efficiently or you're not going to get um, your gasoline out that you're trying to use. Um, and so those things have to be controlled well. Or pharmaceuticals, uh, you get the temperature wrong there. Actually, a lot of different, there's a lot of different things. Um Microchips—that's um, well, well-controlled um, temperature. When you're looking at uh, the the manufacture of the, the silicon boards and those sorts of things, that's all very highly temperature-controlled. And if you don't have those in place, your product's not going to work the way it needs to. Um, so, you know, just all around, temperature is important and you know even outside of the manufacturing world we've we've all gone through this last year where your body temperature was something that was being monitored very closely when you went to places right with the uh with the covid you know and so as we look at um those thermometers that they use they have to be calibrated well um, and if they're not used in the right way you know you could be exposing somebody or letting somebody through that's got, you know, a high fever that could be exposing a lot of different people to that um, virus that was really shut everything down for quite a while.
0: Right. And, and uh, even the use of some of those temperature devices in those cases, I mean, can't in the ways that they're using them to monitor us be, have error in it in, in itself?
1: Yeah, that that's totally Easily the case, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most, uh, let's see the most common way that the temperature was measured was using an infrared thermometer. Right now infrared has a lot of effects that include, um, emissivity. And so if you're using something that's calibrated on a black body and you go and measure it on, you know, human using the human emissivity those aren't the same and so you're there is going to be an error there just in general so it's one of those things where you know yeah there there is there's errors inherent in the system
0: i think you did a really good job of explaining a lot of those risks and what the one you mentioned with the 121 degrees celsius you know my my fellow bio technicians you know the guys that go to biomedical manufacturing are familiar with that temperature point in autoclaves for sure yeah uh autoclaves is what i and when we're talking about that because i i do want to uh keep going down some of these other roads but looking at something like an autoclave because you're an expert to, to ask about this isn't it best with something like that like 121 degrees and let's say that there's any chance of error or whatever or you know that there's an inherent error in your measurement process, you know, something that you're aware of, you know, from different temperature sensors or whatever, wouldn't we want that then, you know, to adjust that temperature? So if it is going to be off, it's off in a high direction, not in a low direction. Is that something that we would typically want to do?
1: Typically for, for, especially for sterilization, that's definitely what we want to do. We don't want to um, give the bacteria or anything like that the chance to still be contaminating them. Um, we have to be careful um, that we don't uh, overshoot so much that we damage the equipment that we're running into the autoclaves. Because you know, some things can have can be very temperature sensitive. Um, and if it gets too hot, then it, it starts to decay and then it's um, no longer usable. So there's there is a a band of error that we can work with but it's got to be you know i would always shoot for being a little bit high rather than risking being on the low side
0: right yeah and that's typically what i would try and convey to my customer you know especially if they aren't quite familiar with how some some of those things like adjustments can work or if you know they give you three points to test and 121 is a little bit you know, high or whatever, but then your other ones are a little bit low. You know, trying to trying to hone in those those adjustments for the customers' needs. You know, and understanding those specific points. So, also um, with training, I think you also have done some auditing over time. So, looking at technicians, looking at labs, what are some of the common mistakes you've seen? Well, let's start first with technicians because a lot of what we do focuses on technicians. And training technicians. So, what what are some things that you mistakes you see tempi- um, technicians make in temperature measurements?
1: Well, it, it does depend on what the instrumentation that, it, that they're using, mm-hmm. but handling of instrumentation is a big issue, or a big it's a big deal. Um, I went to on site to a customer, and they had some micro baths. So they've got small uh, magnetic stir bars in the bottom of them. Yes. And because of sludge or filing buildups that were happening on the magnetic bars, they weren't always starting to stir to stir the fluid quite as well as they'd like. So I went on site and the first thing the technician did is he took one of his calibrated standards that he uses to make his calibrations. He stuck it down at that bottom of that um, micro bath and tapped the um, magnetic stir bar to get it moving around so if that magnetic stir bar comes back around and smacks your you calibrated reference then all of a sudden you're looking at um you know how valid is my calibration anymore right so you have yeah. to start checking those things um so the first you know the first thing is always handling how are the standards or how are the instruments that you're using for calibration how are they being handled um you know, the second thing is, you know, handling then proper use. You know, uh, there's, yeah, there there's so many different things when you're using um, temperature instruments uh, to get the proper, proper immersion is critical in getting a good temperature measurement. Um, if you're using metal sheath probes, for example, metal sheath um, PT100s, And you don't get them immersed far enough, then you start getting ambient effects, and so you're going to have errors in your calibration due to, you know, heat flux through the um, sheaths down to the sensor. And you know, so those sorts of things—just proper use, not just handling, but proper um, proper placement in in the baths—you know, those are big issues. The the really simple ones are the really hard ones to they're simple to make and hard to find is if you're reading using a digital readout and a separate probe that you can put coefficients in to the readouts, um, uh, you know, digit errors on those.
0: Yes. I've seen that a lot.
1: And so, you know, those sorts of things are just where, you know, having a process in place where you've, you put it in and you check it. You might not see the error, so having somebody else come and double check your work is critical because you know two sets of eyes tend to find things a lot better than one person doing it. Sure, and it can be. It can be as easy as a plus or a minus sign can change how the temperature is being read by that thermometer or by that digital readout um, drastically.
0: Um, do you recommend people monitoring their zero point um, on their RTDs or PRTs
1: to watch for drift? I totally recommend it, honestly. Uh, and it, it there was a question that I saw just the other day on LinkedIn about what do you do to measure that? And, you know, it, that all comes back to what level of risk you're willing to take. You know, I having worked for years in a calibration laboratory, you know, a customer sends in a probe, we do some measurements on it. And as far as we're concerned, the probe looks okay. You know, resistance looks fine. uh, or resistance works through all of um, the calibration. It seems stable. We send it back to a customer and they go, well, that value that you gave us for our resistance at the zero point or the water triple point Mm -hmm. is drastically different than what it was last year. When did, you know, what effect is that going to have? And then you start doing a race reverse traceability on that. And, you know, so it can have a massive effect. And if you're not tracking that, you know, you don't know when that problem happened, you know, or if we have a customer that send, we had a customer that sent in a probe, and it failed calibration well when did it have a failure when did it when was it no longer working in my process I can't tell you that from my side if you don't have any way to be tracking that or if you're not tracking that um, resistance at zero point you know then I can't help you (laughs) I can't help you work farther and you know if you didn't if you haven't checked it for six months you know you're looking at quite honestly a 6 month recall on your calibrations if it's if it's that drastic for you and that's a lot of work to be worried about
0: for sure and and to point out to some of the newer the newer technicians that are listening what thomas is talking about is as a as he's calibrating it as he's seeing at that primary level or or whatever there's still the linearity and the the Resistance is fine. It's just that zero has drifted, which is very common. If you've done this for long enough, you'll see the zero will drift from time to time. So you can have a a temperature sensor that's good, but your measurements over, like Thomas is saying, that six month period, somewhere in that in that time frame, it went out of that zero point. And so checking it daily—I mean, would you check something like that daily?
1: Well, it depends on well. It depends on your level of risk. If you're, you know, you know, if you're only doing three or four calibrations a week, weekly is fine. If you're running a laboratory where you're where you're calibrating hundreds of probes a week, you know, daily checks are much more important. Um, the The reason I want to go touch the zero point a little bit. The reason why that is so important. Is all of our calibration or all of our calculations for temperature are based off of a resistance ratio. When we're talking about PT100s, are based off of a resistance ratio of a resistance at a temperature versus its resistance at zero. So it doesn't. It's not just um, something where we're looking at a zero and a span, and that's how it works. If we're working with the ITS ninety, which is the scientific temperature scale, right. as a change in zero affects every single measurement everywhere else, exactly. And, and so it's that's why checking the zero point is so critical. Um, and you know, it's it's one of those things that um, you can do fairly easily. You've got if you get distilled water and pure ice or water or ice that's made from distilled water, you can get a zero point that's accurate within 20 milli degrees. Right. So it's something that you can mix up and make yourself fairly easily. And um, it's just something that you can keep a track on and make certain your probes are working properly. I mean, there's even more accurate ways to do it and more accurate instruments, but it is something that you can do very quickly within your own laboratory even without extra equipment
0: right yeah even in our um if during this temperature um event that we're doing we're showing the, the triple point because um adatel lets us borrow they have one that can do a cell inside of one of their dry wells yeah. and something like that even i mean it's just so so much more accessible than the triple point used to be you know, I I hadn't even had exposure to it until much later in my career, and then now it's a lot. You know, I'm not going to say necessarily well, it is kind of easy, but it's still you know a, a process that you have to be familiar with. But having those ability, you know, those things to monitor your standards, I think you're you're touching on something that's really I've witnessed people using them daily on in on sites and you know putting them through the the various environments on site you know and do nothing but just don't check it every day don't check their zero they just continue on and continue on and and uh you know in other podcasts we've talked about global consumer risk basically where you're passing on your the uncertainties you bring to a measurement you're passing that on to your customer and i don't think a lot of people know that that's happening and that it could be so easy for them to track with something like an you know ice point reference even not even a triple point
1: no, that that is very true. And when we talk about metrology or a calibration, the work that I do in my lab affects your work,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then your work affects whoever your customers are. And so down the line, you know, the primary the primary laboratories, the national labs, the really good um, commercial labs have to do work at a very high level in order to get the product that we see. Um, that we want to use to be to a point where, where it is usable. You know, a, a thermometer is no good if you're trying to see if you've got a fever, if it's only accurate to plus or minus two degrees. That yeah. really doesn't help you anything.
0: Right. Yeah, and and uh, I always find it fascinating, you know, to see what some of those thermometers use. You know, you find a cheaper one that's not using a a, uh, a very good temperature sensor, and you're like, hey, you know, no wonder it's so cheap.
1: No.
0: yeah so um outside of outside of those things so you had the the two care of your standards and then also the proper use of them is there any other any other tips that you would have for labs or technicians that are making i know you mentioned bath so why don't we talk about sources for a minute you know um obviously a lot of people that work in lab might have access to liquid baths which are those are the the best the most uniform sources. Is that fair to say? And then, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, that is fair to say. Baths are, baths are the most uniform sources for a wide variety of temperatures. Um, And, you know, dry blocks, dry wells are something that a lot of people are also um, familiar with, but there's a lot more source of uncertainty that can come in due to Uniformity within a dry block versus what you're going to have in a bath, if you've got a well-stirred bath, right? And so, but you know, as as a you know as a technician um, working with baths, you know, or these temperatures, um, I worked in my 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 temperature range that I worked with in in laboratories from minus uh, the liquid nitrogen point. So in Utah, it's minus 197. Here in the Netherlands is minus one nine five point eight or something like that due to the elevation differences. Sure. But um, so I'm working on a really cold level all the way up to the uh, freezing point of silver. So 962 degrees. Um, Another mistake that I see or something that's not taken into account is you're actually dealing with very, very extreme temperatures. And, you know, that's in and of itself not, can be very difficult or very uh, not nice. If, For example, you get salt splash on you that's sitting at 420 degrees. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, PPE is also really crucial. It makes it hard sometimes to move around to do um, laboratory work, but, you know, splash guards, face shields, those sorts of things are important to have so that, you know, you can protect your body.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've worked on a few of those, uh, annealing salt bath, you know, really like I didn't know that people use melted salt for, for any type of process until I, you know, started going out to some of these places and you see, you know, salt bath used for annealing and, and the, anyone that has been around that and it feels that radiating heat, but then just imagining if that did get onto your bare skin, like it would just, that would not be pleasant. No, it's not fun. <laughs> oh, you've had some slash on you.
1: Oh, just little drops for most of what I've done. But, um, you know, there's, there's horror stories of having one of those annealing baths explode onto somebody. And that's not wearing PPE because mm-hmm. the glass or whatever that they were annealing um, had uh, acid on the inside of it oh, wow. that broke. And then, you know, third degree burns, those sorts of things for people. It's just, yeah, not fun. Right. Now, you
0: mentioned also insertion depths. I was wondering just because of your in-depth knowledge and maybe you can explain some of these things at a basic level better than I can, but can you talk about heat transfer? Like how, what do we as technicians need to know about how obviously, you know, things are going to come to, you know, you put your, your probe inside of a, a a dry block and they're going to try and come to a uniform temperature.
1: Well, the heat transfer you know, it's the first, um, first and foremost. When we're making temperature measurements, we actually aren't measuring the temperature of the environment that it's in. We're measuring the temperature of the sensor. So, you know, like you said, we're trying to we put we put something into a system hoping to get it to an equilibrium point. Equilibrium. Um, temperature equal. Temperature, That's what I was looking for. <laughs> temperature <laughs> equilibrium, but. What ends up happening is you've got a lot of different um, sources of temperature that you're working with. Um, You've got, of course, the heat source that you're working with. Um, That can be in an elevated temperature or a very low temperature, um, but something away from what the environment is that you're working with. Um, And then what happens is um, as you put a probe into a sensor into those environments, there, there, there's a critical point where you, once you've passed that, the, whatever is housing the sensor, um, the environment doesn't play a role anymore because you've got enough immersed into the um, temperature source that you're working with. So the ambient environment doesn't have any more effect on the temperature of what the sensor is seeing. It's only seeing the temperature of the heat source. But for example, if you've got a probe that's not inserted far enough, the heat, for example, if you're measuring a minus 40 degrees C and you're using a probe that's the handles and the upper part of the sheath is at room temperature 25, Mm -hmm. there's a gradient from the tip of the probe um, or from the handle down to this, um, the critical point for in insertion where you go from 25 degrees C down to the minus 4 minus 40 that it's, the bath is in. Um, for each probe, it's slightly different, but there is this gradient that happens. And once it's in the bath, as long as the critical immersions happened, the sensor is not going to see any of those problems that mm-hmm. are happening outside. But if you're not or past that um, critical immersion point or that minimum required immersion, then that gradient, even though the probe is still sitting in the minus 40 temperature bath, that gradient is still working its way down, getting closer and closer to the sensor. And so you end up having uh, that heat transfer from the, enviro- from the environment, from the um, ambient conditions, Actually, all the way into the sensor, that's it, at a completely different temperature. So it's going to actually read slightly warmer than what is the actual temperature of the bath.
0: And it can, and it can depend on, I guess you could say that ratio, on how far it's out. Like if you have something that's extremely long, will it affect it by whole degrees, or um, are we?
1: Yes. So there's, there's kind of a rule of thumb when we're mm-hmm. talking about immersion. is It depends on how big the diameter is of the probe that you're working with and how long the actual sensing element inside the, the probe is. So, for example, if you're working with, um, so the rule of thumb is if it's a thin-walled um, metal sheath, 20 times the diameter plus the sensor length. So, if you're working with an instrument, for example, that's got a quarter-inch diameter probe, six millimeters for those that work in the uh, metric system, right? It's a little bit more than six millimeters. Um, you have to have twenty times that, so five inches plus mm-hmm. a one-inch sensor. So, in order to get your critical immersion depth. Um, you need to be able to get that probe six inches into whatever the heat source is. Right. And so when you're talking six inches of insertion into a dry block, you know, the top of that dry block is exposed to ambient, So that's also going to cause gradient. So there's all of those effects from, you know, the gradient that happens with the probe within a heat or within a temperature source is also have affecting a dry block. So even if you've got um, 150 millimeters or six inches worth of um, immersion in a dry block, there's still a gradient from top to bottom in that dry block because it's exposed right. as well. Whereas with a bath, because you've got so much, um, you have more thermal mass that's moving around. So it's constantly changing position the stuff that's cold at the top's working its way down to the bottom it works its around it circles around the temperature is a lot more uniform you don't have those effects within a bath as much as you do um, with a dry block so that's a number to remember is 20 times the diameter plus whatever the sensor length is that's kind of a rule of thumb of how far it needs to be inserted
0: and if it's if you're working on a, a customers that that Maybe you don't have access to some of that information. I mean, you can obviously check the the own dimensions of the probe that you're checking. But if you don't have the sensor at the actual sensing element size, what's your best advice with that?
1: Most, it depends on what type of sensor it is. But on PT100s, most sensors are, you know, two and a half um, centimeters an inch or smaller. It's when you get into the very high level SPRTs that those sensors start to get become a lot bigger.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: Um, So, so you know, if you add an inch to it, you're going to be in most cases you should be well covered if you're working with a PT one hundred industrial level probe. Yeah, three wire of some kind. Three wire, you know, and and they they can get to be extremely small. I've worked with probes that have. Uh, diameters of five millimeters. So oh. you, you're, you're looking at a probe that has, you know, let's see, five millimeters, you know, f- that's just tiny or not five, no, point five millimeters, not five millimeters, 0.5 millimeters. Oh, okay. Because five millimeters is just under a quarter inch, 0.5 millimeters. So you're looking at something that's extremely thin mm-hmm. Um, And the sensor is pretty tiny inside that. So, you know, immersion for that's virtually, you know, once it's in the bath or in the heat source, it's, it's immersed enough. But, you know, typically, you know, for a, a standard probe, and a lot of probes you'll find are made by, there's only a few manufacturers of PRTs in the world.
0: Sure. That's true. And,
1: you know, if you look up, for example, Burns Engineering, um, they're one of the biggest manufacturers of PRTs and their website has great information on how big their sensors are. If you don't have it actually to hand, um, that's a place you know where you can get that information to, if you're worried about whether or not you've got enough immersion. But the other thing you can do is you can actually test to see if you're getting sufficient immersion. Um that starts by you know placing the probe as far in as you can into whatever heat source you are, and then incrementally bringing it up. And if the temperature stays relatively um, uniform over a certain, as long as the temperature stays fairly uniform with what it is fully inserted, you've got critical immersion. As soon as it starts to deviate drastically, then you're no longer um, immersed properly. So you know. That that's the point where you need to make certain sure. um, that, that you've got, that you're tested to.
0: Now it, it brought up a question in my head, because there are times where there are, even with RTDs that I've seen out there in the field that you can't remove them. Like they're in something like a, yeah. like a big vat or, or, or that. Do you mind talking for a minute about sourcing resistance and the times that that's acceptable, uh, things that we need to think about maybe things that we can communicate to our customers you know like things off the top of my head is if it this is a critical process you know that's a, a risky type of calibration i mean would you agree
1: in situ calibration you meaning you don't all you can do is source resistance to the readout like say a, readout. like a
0: wattlow of some kind or like a um you know, maybe uh, an Allen Bradley or some sort of data acquisition system?
1: Well, if you're, if you're using the standards, um, the ASTM standard or the DIN standard to source your resistance, Mm you know, those are accurate to, you know, they have class standards. And so each class, depending on the probe um, will, you know, has an accuracy at zero and then it expands as you go away from zero Um, As long as that's within your tolerance, you know, that's a way if you source it directly to the readout, giving the resistance values to the readout and seeing if the readout's correct, at least you will know that the readout's working properly. So when you hook it up to a probe, you know, you can see whether or not the probe's working correctly. There is uncertainty in that because you've got a transfer of your known... um, you know, of whoever your caliber, whoever your calibration provider is, their uncertainty to your readout. And then that readouts, you know, your device you're trying to read the probe with. You know, so there's there's going to be an increased uncertainty versus if you can actually calibrate the the probe itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that is a, a valid way to do it, but there's just more risk involved and you know there's a higher chance that, you know, the probe itself might not work where you when you go to put it in, but you know when it's when it's built into a process, um, there's a lot of those where you like you said you can't remove them; they're are right. solid in. So, you know you you can at least see you know if the readout's properly calibrated, you can see what the temperature is that that sensor's reading, then you can adjust your process accordingly if right. you need to.
0: Yeah. You're just not going to have the ability to, I guess, check that, uh, like the zeros and and everything to, to make sure sure you're really just leaving the, the, the sensor out of it. You're, you don't know anything about
1: it, right? You don't know anything about it outside of the fact that you know what the class is supposed to be. So you can say the sensor is working properly or it's not. And in that case, you, you know, it's very critical that you keep the resistance, um, readings valid for whatever readout you are. So that would be, then become your check. Um, you can't just hook it up to your Wattlow or whatever readout device you're using and forget it. You need to check that Wattlow. That becomes that becomes the instrument that you check is the Wattlow versus the probe. Right.
0: Now, what about uh, air measurements? Like someone has to do an incubator, you know, and there's a, an open probe in there. You know, is is uh, is a single probe just as close as possible to the probe inside? Is that you know? I, I know a lot of technicians get faced with really weird situations where you know mm-hmm. they're they're put on site to to go do something. I've even had ones be like, I can't I can't uh, achieve this point, and they're trying to do some low temperature with very high humidity, or you know, vice versa, where the the situation inside of that that environmental chamber just doesn't work with each other. Yeah. So obviously air is the worst, right? The worst
1: (laughs) air is terrible to work with. Um, You know, the, the, the hard part with air is especially like you're talking about with an incubator. Usually you've only got one control probe Mm -hmm. that's running the system. So whatever that control probe sees, that's what it's going to say the temperature is, but there's huge gradients. So, you know, what's really important or there can be huge gradients within an environmental chamber. What's important is you kind of need to map the entire chamber out mm-hmm. to make certain that what the, what the sensor is saying, what the sensor that's making the measurement is saying actually, you know, is fairly valid throughout the chamber. You know, you, that's something where you've got to check it because there's so many factors that can cause that not to work. If the air becomes um, too stagnant, the the circulation. If you've got a, a forced air system, if it doesn't, if that's not moving around properly, you end up getting gradients throughout the system that are larger than what you would hope to have or you would expect to have, or vice versa if it's moving too much right around the areas where the um, areas introduced into the system causes you know can have or not places where you want to be putting things because it's got a gradient away from what you're expecting to see right
0: yeah I've always whenever it's something even, I've even had places that do things um in manufacturing where they they obviously bake things but they use actual ovens you know something that's a commercial grade oven and and then you know trying to give them the best possible cal and you know trying to explain to them that anything involving an air media you know is really hard
1: it is it is extremely hard just because number one it's you know as we're talking about it it's hard to just calibrate this the standards themselves if they're going to be done in air very to get a good uncertainty on your calibration that's very difficult to do. And then you plug that back into a system um, where you're trying to calibrate somebody's oven or their furnace or their incubator. Those things just all of a sudden become, you know, wrought with problems uh, because there's just the uniformity is so difficult to maintain in an air system versus, right. you know, even a metal block or a stirred bath, those those uniformities in that thing. So you can have very large gradients throughout a, a throughout an oven or throughout a furnace if it's just using open air.
0: Right. Or even a room size anything, you know. Oh. Yeah, like the, the big ones for, I've seen them in a lot of the, the like air industries, aeronautical industries where it's like they're curing wings or something yeah. and they're, you know, looking for a. You know, I usually get a, a DAC out and, you know, try and do the, the different quadrants and, and spots of that room. But it just seems so unreliable. And and you'll just see I, – I always feel bad for the ones that are the manufacturers or the people that have to service the ovens because they'll come in, you know, and they'll see our readings from everywhere. And the place will – you know, one corner will have a 20-degree Fahrenheit difference in temperature, you know, and, and it's all because of – different Lou uh, what are they all the uh the louvers. flat louvers and flaps and everything that move the air around you know it's just so complex yeah that's room, whole room is there an is there a, a resource for whole room I I haven't been I haven't done one of those calibrations for a couple of years I've been just doing the school but I if I remember correctly all we could find is something from the world Ho- world health organization about checking room temperatures
1: yeah it's that's, that's a real hard one. I honestly don't do, have not done a lot with room t- whole room sure. temperatures. And so I, I mean, there's, there's, um, standards for testing, you know, chamber gradients and how you have or chambers and placement approach for that. So that's the closest that I've actually run into But you know, whole rooms, you know, that's just a massive volume that you're working with and that's, that's a real difficult thing to keep, um, keep everything constant for sure
0: have you ever done any of those pcrs that are the little mini wells
1: the the pcr work that i did was while i was back in university oh okay Um, i I, i've not done a lot of that in in my career to this point i know that that's a big thing right now Mm
0: -hmm. well the, the question i had for you is i see oftentimes the application for that is thermistors Mm -hmm. Uh, is that probably for that shallow depth, anything shallow depth is also a challenge. And I know the, the difficulty of going on site and they have, you know, something that screws into something and it's just a little button, uh, temperature device of some kind or anything is, um, I mean, what, what is your opinion on that is for really shallow depths is, is thermistors the best? Do they require less of a insertion?
1: Well, a thermistor is is as close to a point sensor as you're going to get when you're looking with resistance, because they're they're really small sensors and they tend to be very durable sensors as well. And so, you know, if you if you have a bare thermistor, not not a not one that's put in a metal sheath, but a bare thermistor, or one that's you know silicon um, mm-hmm. encased with a flexible silicon end on it. You know that's um, some of the smallest temp- resistive temperature sensors you're going to be able to get, and so you can put those into some really small, shallow areas. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So, talking about sensors, we've we've kind of gone through all of them. I, I did also want to mention to to people that are here to learn things that kill temperature sensors. So, I know off the top of my head, vibration is always one that you have to look out for. Uh, Are there other ones? You know, we were talking about wild changes. Is there a problem from going from a bone freezer at negative 80 into a furnace right away? You know, what are some of the things that will kill your temperature reading standards?
1: Your your standards. um, A lot of probes have a hermetic seal at the end, and they have to be kept outside of specific temperature ranges. Um, If you get it too cold or too hot, that hermetic seal breaks. That ruins your probe. That's that's done. Vibration, like you said, is a huge thing. Um, So that's something you've got to watch out for. Drastic changes um, in temperature can be a real big problem. Um, It's, you know, it's not recommended to take it from a cold temperature to a a really hot temperature or vice versa, without at least a, a time to come back to at least room temperature. Um, you know, especially with resistance based pros. Um, they, they just just the jump in temperature can cause, especially with PT100s and things like that that have um, packing or whatever around um, the sensor that kind of stabilize the sensors, make them more, more robust and more um, safe for that vibration. If you do that huge thermal shock that um, when a, the wires and things end up moving faster than the packing can handle and that ends up causing issues and things like that with your sensors.
0: What is that? You mentioned the her- hermetic seal. That's the first time I've heard about it. And I'm, I'm o- I always try and be honest in the, in the podcast because I'd like to <laughs> pretend like I know everything. But I didn't even know at the end, are you talking about the very cap? Because it's usually, you know, it goes from a sheath up to a, a, a slightly larger metal piece. And then are you mm-hmm. saying where the actual wires, uh, come, out. wires yeah, come out? There's
1: there's usually an epoxy seal or hermetic seals, those sorts of things up there that keep moisture from entering into the probes. Because mm-hmm. you start to get moisture to condense um, in a probe and it changes your resistance readings. It, you know, if it's open to air and moisture, then... You know, corrosion happens on the sensors as well as uh, moisture droplets uh, condensing as you go to colder temperatures, um, getting sucked into the probe um, because it will create a vacuum as you go to a colder temperature. So the lower pressure inside is going to pull the ambient air into it, which is going to have moisture, which then causes issues with um, your readings. Uh, Yeah, the, the probes are, a lot of probes are made to, be sealed from the environment so that, you know, the sensor inside is going to work no matter what.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. I learned something. So that's good to know what, how, what, um, if, if your, if your probe will go up to 300, 400 C or something like that, what do you think that seal would, and this is just in general, everyone listening, you have to know your own stuff. You have to know your own standards, but is there a general idea of what that
1: Um, the probes that I've worked with, the handle itself can usually go from about minus 80 to plus 80, plus
0: 100. Wow. So it's pretty shortened then.
1: Yeah. Um, the, 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 uh, as you get up our, our rule of thumb that I used when we were working, if it was too hot to touch, if it hurt me to grab it it was probably not good for the seal.
0: So instead of using the entire sensor, you're going to have to figure out how to just put that probe in the probe tip in.
1: Well, not yeah, Not using the entire length because you know, if well, it's not the tip more. So the handles, um, you know, because you can have it offset from the heat source and still get enough immersion. But if whatever's coming up off your heat source makes that handle too hot for you to grab it. Mm -hmm. um. You know, you're you're looking at possibly damaging the, the the seals themselves on the probes.
0: Well, and that's good to know because I'm talking about people that will put a whole like we're talking an environmental chamber, like pop the whole thing in.
1: Yeah, well, there are there are probes that are designed to do that.
0: Sure, I don't think
1: I don't think the but people not all that, but are considering that, but not all of them are. So there are there are probes that are designed to. Be fully immersed in whatever temperature environment they're, you know, they're just they're calibrated over, um, but not all are. Most aren't. I would have to say most probes are not designed to be fully fully immersed, and so right. you have to keep that in mind that that handle the the hub as I called it or as I was taught to call it, um, where the, where all the connections are made to go to the sensor down inside the probe. Um, that's critical that you don't want to overheat it or get it too cold because it can crack, end up cracking the sill, and then your probe is probe is shot, basically.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I've seen it, you know, and and I've seen vibration kill one, but I I've seen ones where it's unexplainable, but many times there has been, you know, possibly a full immersion there, so maybe they have a leak that they didn't even know about, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's very, there's a, there's a couple of things to test. Um, If you've got a moisture leak past your seal and that's to, you measure your zero point and then you take it, leave it down at a colder temperature for a while. And then you measure zero again. If the resistance drops, it's very likely that you have a moisture leak. And then to reverse that, you leave it at zero you take that measurement then you heat it back up to a temperature that's above the boiling point of water, you know, a couple hundred degrees. Mm-hmm. You stick it back in. If the resistance goes up, it's obvious that you've got, you know, moisture in there.
0: Sure. Now last question for you on the technical end, cause we're, we're approaching an hour here. Um, you did mention in the beginning, some of the differences between where you're at now in the Netherlands and, and here food uh, some of those, key points you know in chemistry you know things that happen at specific points what what measurements do people need to worry about elevation you know pressure obviously that's something that is a main consideration when it comes to temperature as a day-to-day technician how often do we have to consider where we're at
1: well it depends on what there's there's a few things that you have to look at some uh, temperature sources are elevation dependent. Meaning, at, at different elevations, they're going to give you different results. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're using anything that's a boiling point, that's of, of anything, one I use mostly was liquid nit- liquid nitrogen. That temperature depends on where you're at as far as elevation. If you're using boiling point of water, um, you know, for the for Fahrenheit. Boiling point of water, we're taught it's 212 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> right? That That's at sea level where mm-hmm. you're at in Utah, you're more about 209 210, right? And so that temperature drops. And you know, growing up, we I'd do scout trips up to the, the UN, so you'd have boiling water, but you couldn't get your uh your pasta to cook because it wasn't actually hot enough to cook the pasta, right? Yeah. That's because funny. of that that elevation change. Um, so,
0: and so, so mostly a consideration for the for the boiling points if someone has to do something in that realm.
1: Yeah, that's that's the that's the temperature point that's usually the most affected um, when you're doing that phase transition, because uh all phase transitions are temperature and pressure dependent. Correct. Um, yeah, right. But as you phase transitioning from A liquid to vapor, you know. Basically, the higher elevation, the lower the atmospheric pressure, the faster, the easier that 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 transition is going to happen. So, the lower that temperature is going to be, and so you know that's that's the one that has the biggest effect because you're actually the transfer is happening from the the liquid phase to the vapor phase or to the the gas phase, and so you know. If there's less pressure holding those gas molecules in, than Raoult's law or the, the, the rule that is used to determine equilibrium between gas and liquid at the boiling point, um, you know that becomes a transfer point where that temperature drops significantly versus, right. versus the change from solid to liquid you don't have a lot of molecules escaping. There are some, but you don't have a lot of molecules actually escaping from solid to liquid transfer. um, At when that, or when you're doing that phase change, you don't have those escaping out to the M or the environment as much. So that's pressure is not quite as critical as it is for um, liquid to vapor systems. So if you're doing a boiling point, Gotcha.
0: Yeah. It makes total sense.
1: And if you want to go to the the most accurate measurements, actually all measurements are very pressure dependent. Um, when we're talking about fixed point cells, the very highest level um, sense or temperature sources, um, all the temperatures that we work at for those fixed points are defined at sea level, so you know standard atmospheric pressure. Um, but if this, the pressure that's within inside the cell isn't at that, then there is an offset that has to be taken into account.
0: Yeah. Cause those are always sealed vessels for the most part, right?
1: Well, they, they can be sealed or they can be, they can be sealed or open, but the pressure that you do, if you're using a fixed point cell, mm-hmm. um, for a measurement, then that pressure difference is a huge difference for you. And, um, for people that aren't using fixed point cells, it doesn't seem like much, but it, it can be as much as a couple thousandths of degree. And so when you're using a fixed point cell, that's huge. Right. But, but when you're using, you know, if you're just a everyday user, that doesn't seem like that's that big of a deal, but it, it can be very critical when we're looking at, um, you know, those fixed point temperatures.
0: With extremely low uncertainties so anything that you're adding you know that's that's a big deal and that's why you're using those is because i I, at least in my experience someone's using a a triple point it's to you know check their zero on on their sprts you know something that they need a really good uncertainty
1: that's true
0: well awesome well, that's, that's most of the questions I have. I don't know if you're available for future podcasts, but I'm sure more questions will come up over the year. So, the, Thomas, the the last question I'll ask you, and we always like to throw in a fun one, do you have any weird calibrations that you've been a part of? Anything that is just odd but is might be interesting to the listeners?
1: Well, I, the weirdest thing that I've ever it, – it's not something that I was directly related to, or but I – it was part of the company I was working with. And it's not necessarily something that might be interesting, but it goes back to that immersion depth that we were talking about. Um, there's um, a sensor a probe that we would calibrate. It's had that quarter inch diameter, one inch sensor. So you have to have six inches of immersion to get it to work. And we had a customer um, call up and was talking with our, um, with our customer support and they're like you know that probe we just had it calibrated but it's not reading right there's no way this can be the right temperature that i'm that i'm reading and our customer some customer support um started talking to him and he said you know you have to have six inches of immersion 150 millimeters in order to get a good reading out of that probe and the customer on the other line just went uh, that, that's, that's just not possible. There's no way we're ever going to get a six inch immersion. And well, the customer services, like, you really, you know, you're, you're not going to get a good measurement unless you get that six inches. And they went back and forth and, you know, the customer's like, is there any way we can get it, get a good measurement without getting the six inches and, um, and he just said no. It really, really can't do it. You have to have six inches of immersion. So they they got down to it, and they agreed that you know, it just they they weren't going to be able to get any better measurements than what they were getting. And as they were closing up, the customer service representative asked the customer, he says, "So, just out of curiosity, um, what's what are you using this probe to measure?" And customer goes oh, well we're using it to measure the body temperatures of hamsters
0: <laughs> that would yeah. uh be difficult to get six inches in that's for sure yeah
1: you're not getting six inches of for a body temperature of a hamster with that so needless to say when that particular type of probe started coming when the next one of those that we saw come back we were very careful to make certain we really, really cleaned it well before right? we started calibration.
0: <laughs> oh, that's classic. Well, so, that's, a, that's a good one. So it's definitely I, weird.
1: It's weird. It's weird. I, haven't, I, I wasn't the one doing the calibration, but it was using something that we had calibrated. So
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for that. So Harper Metrology, so promote it for us here at the end. So uh, you, are you open to customers worldwide? Uh, yeah, I,
1: I, I'm working worldwide right now. I have customers based in Canada, in the U.S., U.K., Ireland, and the Netherlands, of course, um, working just to really get it out. I, my, I With technology the way it is now, um, yes, time differences make it hard to do phone calls at times but we can, tr- we can share files, share ideas so easily with, our, um, with the internet or with our computers, emails back and forth that my, my customer base is actually worldwide. And so harpermetrology.com, it's a new website, so it's not the greatest in the world, but at least it, you know you can get to it and you can get to me from through that or you can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I do have 20 years of experience in temperature calibration um, working in some of the best labs, commercial labs in the world. Um, we talked about uncertainties. Uh, the uncertainties in the labs I worked in were second only to um, NIST or NIST in the US. Wow. Uh, we're better, we were better than better than or as good as every nas- every other national lab in the world. Nice. So temperature temperature uncertainties, um, how to get your processes working the best. Those are things that I can definitely help you with. Um, and I'm just excited to really build this up to help people get the best out of, their, um, best out of their, their processes, best out of the instrumentation that they've got. And that's something that I've I enjoyed doing for 20 years with Fluke. I've been all over the world for Fluke doing just that. Um, and now I'm doing it for myself.
0: Awesome. Is it mostly temperature or do you do other disciplines as well?
1: Well, I, you know, with metrology, um, a lot of principles cross over in other areas. I focus mostly on temperature because that's where my main goal or my main area always has been. But humidity, Mm -hmm. some pressure, and then other things, um, general consulting for metrology, you know, looking at, Places where we where can we find sources of error or potential sources of error and how do we apply those to our uncertainties? You know, that's something that I can help, with. you know, just about anybody that's doing metrology help them with.
0: Right. And I also saw that you you post some interesting stuff. I We've only been friends or connections on LinkedIn for a little while, but I see you also put out some interesting stuff or share things on there as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I try and do things not only involving temperature work because I've done some pretty high level stuff, but I also kind of show, you know, we living here in the Netherlands, we've um, we bought a house um, and it's a fixer upper. So I might post a couple of things that we're working on with that. Or I also enjoy baking, taking care of my family with, with the food that we do. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of a hobby baker. And so nice. I, might, no, I, I, might I do barbecue.
0: Like I smoke you know, things. Yeah. You smoke things.
1: I I've my most recent is I've started with uh sourdough. So I've done sourdough breads, sourdough bread. um it's not easy to get over here. It's, so it's not something that's easily as easy to find. So sourdough breads, I've done sourdough cinnamon rolls, um, biscuits was you know, made from sourdough, you know, just a lot of different fun things with that. So
0: nice. Very cool. Well, Thomas, I once again I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, and I hope we get to chat with you again in the future.
1: You're welcome, and definitely, if you've got any more uh, questions or things like that re- regarding temperature, I'm totally open to it. So,
0: yeah, I- anybody that has questions, send them either my our way uh, at Sign Calibration, or you can send them Thomas's way, and we can chat about them in the future. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you.
1: Great. Thomas. Thank you.
0: Thank you once again for listening to the Metrology Today podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a guest, please contact us at information at signcalibration.com.